Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 164 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a landscape photographer whom I've admired for a very long time, John Barkley. John hails from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and is a fantastic photographer, musician, and a great guy. John and I had a wonderful conversation this week and covered a wide variety of topics, including his beginnings in photography, John's contemplative photography retreats, the why of landscape photography, your connection to your subject and how to choose how to capture it, how bringing ourselves to our photography has an impact on the final product, and much, much more. Over on Patreon this week, John and I talk about how he leverages his communication skills to be a better photographer, business person, and how it has aided him in his success. Well, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about some new and exciting things happening over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is now doing free webinars every two weeks for members, and you can sign up for a free 60-day trial to watch them as well. So far, they've had Cole Thompson, Alistair Ben, today's guest, John Barkley, and many, many others. And they have a lot more big names coming. The webinars are focused on creativity and vision, as with most things over on NPN, which is why I really like it. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to the show notes and find a link to the free trial. Okay, let's get to the show. Well, John Barkley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, and thank you for inviting me to be here. It's an honor and a privilege to be amongst, you know, when I, Matt, when I looked at the list, because I've been following your podcast for a while, but I went back when you did this invitation, I was like, okay, so why did Matt invite me again? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> That's there's funny. Some, some friends there and then others who I didn't know, which is what I love about your your podcast is because I'm, I'm able to learn from all these other wonderful, brilliant photographers. So it is a privilege. I hope I can rise up to those expectations. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about, about you is that um, you have a very different philosophical approach to your photography and um, I think it's going to prov- offer something very unique to our listeners that people are going to appreciate, I hope. So, but before we dive into that, um, maybe just uh, quickly just introduce yourself, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you live, maybe how long you've been doing photography for it, you know, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Give the background, sure. So, yeah. so it all started way back when in the 15th century. Stone <laughs> <laughs> tablets and so yes. That's right, yeah. yeah. And then they said, let there be light. It, said, it happened right when there was let there be light. It was that far ago, no. So my journey with photography, so number one, I'm in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, but I'm from New England. I'm a wicked hardcore Red Sox fan. I, if there's Yankee fans out there, I'm <laughs> sorry. But, you know, you 27, it's enough. Seriously, let it go. Let the we've only got four. Let us have a few more. So I'm from New England, but the transplant down to this area. I've been in the medical device industry for 30 years. I gave that up a few years ago, but I had my own uh, sales agency selling in the medical device space. But I started my photography business uh, as an LLC back. 
back in in 2007. But the journey of photography started with my dad. I remember being in the basement in one of these old, it was a plastic pellets barrel because he worked in the plastics industry at the time. And he had these great barrels to store things in. And I was rifling through that as a little kid would do probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. And I found these, what I didn't know what they were, but they were these cool books full of these two and a quarter by two and a quarter black and white negative. And I wow. went, what are, these, what are these, dad? I had no idea. Well, he was in World War II and he was in Korea. Uh, he was in the service for 10 years. And uh, one of his jobs was to photograph the bomb runs in a B-25, same as the Doolittle Raiders. Uh, that's the type of airplane he was in. Flew 63 missions, flew in Joseph Heller's squadron, actually, of the Catch-22 book. He was in oh, yeah. that squadron, kind of cool. So dad's got great stories. And so he told me what these were. And I said, well, what the heck do you do with these? How do you how do you get a print from this negative? It was total, you know, totally blind to me. I didn't know what was going on. So he kind of told me. I got interested, long story a little shorter, because if you get to know me, Matt, you'll know I don't know how to have a short story. <laughs> <laughs> you sound well, like me. I'm the same way. My wife makes fun of me all the time because yeah, of that. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, usually my friends will be sleeping, and I know that when the snoring's going that I probably ought to wrap the story up. But And he ended up building a darkroom for me um, because I showed some interest, and my, my mom bought me for Christmas, you know, Ansel Adams, the, the print, the negative, those two books. And I got engrossed, bought a Mamiya C330 uh, Twins Lens Reflex camera. I had to have, obviously, a, a two and a quarter uh, camera because that's what my dad had, right? And, uh, and when he would be like in uh, Japan, he would go on on rest R and R, and he would just make photographs for fun too, rather than just the bomb runs and so forth. That was part of his job. So that's where my passion came from. Was my dad who who taught me the darkroom skills, and and I enjoyed doing that. And then all of a sudden, got married, raised a family, and then gave up photography because the family became our priority. And then. Uh, let me see. It's got to be 20 years now because I'm old and married for a long time. But uh, my wife came to me at Christmas time and gave me this gift. And in it is a camera. And I'm like, what the heck is this? I didn't ask for a camera Christmas. <laughs> and and she says, it, she now she argues that this never really happened. But this is exactly the way I remember her face saying it. <laughs> and it was, you know, you've become kind of grumpy in your old age. You need some balance in your life. And so I talked to a camera. <laughs> Because <laughs> at that time I'm you know I'm self-employed I'm working hard to to feed a family and I've I've got no creativity matter but you know funny as that might be the truth was she was right you know mm. I didn't have balance and I didn't have that creative side of my life in check at all and so I went out and took a workshop got interested in photography again you know reignited that passion and uh, and then you know took off from there Tony Sweet was one of my excellent educators and, and a mentor, Freeman Patterson, I studied with who would be, I don't know, have you ever had Freeman on? No, I haven't. I've reached out to him a few times, but... Well, uh, maybe I can help you with that. I'll, I'll be happy to try. Freeman's a friend. And so uh, with him as well, and then the late Nancy Rotenberg, who was absolutely my biggest influence, and unfortunately she passed of cancer back, I think in 2011. So with all those influences, and then my dear friend Dan Sniffen, who we became tour partners and did 40 tours together, he had a huge influence on me and brought me all the way to, kind of to here. So that's that's the long well, the, the slightly shortened version of the launch. When, uh, when did you? When did your wife buy you that camera? 
You know, it's got to be 20 years ago. Let me see. If okay. somebody, if so, it was a Canon Elon 2. So whenever that camera was in vogue, <laughs> it's got, seriously, it's got to be 20 years. Still though, 20 years is a long time. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks. I mean, seeing as you're what, 27? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm 41, but you know. Oh, okay. Well, close. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I've been doing photography for a little over a decade and it doesn't feel like it's that long, but you know, perspective is everything. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit about um, these contemplative photography retreats that you are involved with, because I've when I've heard you talk about these in the past, it it really really piqued my interest and sounded like something that you know it might not be for everyone, but for me it sounded like something just extraordinary and very different than what most people are doing nowadays in in photography. So tell us about that. Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. It is absolutely my favorite offering each year. And so the Contemplative Photography Retreat happened like this. Um, DeWitt Jones invited me to come be part of a very special group of photographers who lead workshops out at a place called the Hui Ho'olana in Molokai, Hawaii. And uh, it's the property of Ricky Cook and Bronwyn Cook. Uh, Ricky is also a a retired National Geographic guy like uh, DeWitt is. And I had been helping to co-lead some some workshops there and then met this gentleman named Flint Sparks. Now, come on. That's the best name ever. Flint <laughs> That's a great Sparks. name. He is. And he's probably the finest human being I've ever met, along with my dear friend that I just spoke about, Nancy Rotenberg. Flint is just an amazing human being. And we had this connection and experience that he was a participant in a workshop. Well, Flint is a psychologist by training, a family and and. Um, marital counselor through the years, a PhD guy, did research and training and so forth uh, in mental health. And he also happens to be a Zen priest. Uh, And so, you know, his offerings during that workshop, which was more of a traditional workshop, were just powerful to me. And I just had this revelation that, you know, as I meet with the people that I'm leading on workshops, that there's, and, and also with my own personal work, I wanted something more than f-stop and shutter speed education and how do I compose a good picture and how do I focus stack? And, you know, there's a lot of people who do that really well, and I certainly can do that, but it's not what my heart is. It's not what it, what I was feeling, at least for my own personal work, is what I needed to work on. I had that. How do I now get to that next level? And so I went to Flint and said, Flint, I have this idea, and I what I see, and we called it a mindful photography workshop the first time. We did it, and then we morphed it into what feels more comfortable for us, and that's a contemplative photography, not a, not a workshop. It's a very purposeful choice of a word, retreat, because we were asking for, and really Flint is asking for, because he's doing most of that education on this, this a retreat. He's asking you to retreat from how you have heretofore approached photography. And so think about it. What we do, it's it's much like my sales world that I came from. We get a guy, we think he's nice or a gal, and we say, we're going to make you a salesperson. And we throw you out and say, become a salesperson. We don't train them in any way, shape, or form. And we hope eventually they learn how to become a good salesperson. Well, in photography, what do we do? We, we say, you got to learn shutter speeds and f-stops and depth of field and all these things. Well, that's certainly an important part of photography, having a command of the technical side or the craft, if you will, side of photography is certainly important. But what's when I started to think about and study the photographers that I love, I realized 
realized that that's not what was helping them make images that resonated so deeply with me. What was resonating is what how they were feeling and what they how they were being moved by a scene or those types of things were way more important. And now how do I translate that? How do and then more importantly, what what Flint and I had hoped to do and now we feel like we're doing is invite people to just ask really one simple question and that is how do you show up to photograph? Mm-hmm. So rather than let's work on all those tools again don't misunderstand Matt. I, they're important. I need to have to, to the point where they're so important that you need to learn those technical skills so that they got out of, I'm sorry that they get out of the way of your creative moments, right? I mean, I don't right. want to have to be consulting a manual to find out how to do multiple exposure because my heart is saying, oh my gosh, it's screaming at me. I've got to capture this scene and I know it can't be a straight photograph. It's got to be an image swipe. It's got to be a multiple exposure. And I want to be able to just go boom and do that, right? But but what became more important than even that was how do I show up? How do I approach photography what what can i do and that's what we're offering in the contemplative photography retreat is a a deep dialogue on a daily basis with exercises that we provide and lots of photography in an incredibly beautiful island of molokai but we're really constantly inviting them to report back on so how did you show up today what did you bring to the act of photography what light did you bring versus or in addition, rather, to the light that you're receiving into your lens and onto your sensor plane or onto the film, what light are you then bringing uh, to the act of photography? And what's really kind of cool is, so not only do we have Flint, who's a very fine photographer, but as he would tell you, that's not really what he is. He's more of a Zen priest who happens to use photography to help make these beautiful presentations he does. The reality is he's a brilliant photographer, but then include into that Ricky, who I spoke about, and DeWitt, who live right there. They are also part of the discussion. And what's really helpful there is they are are just, Amplify is not the right world. They're, they're putting the exclamation point on how critical it was as a National Geographic photographer. And again, don't we hold those people up as the epitome of what we do, right? They, right. We all aspire to be a Nat Geo photographer. And so they're sitting there and they might not say it in the same uh, Zen language that Flint might or the same language that I might use, but essentially the message is identical. What was critical is how did they approach a project or an assignment in their case to go photograph India or the Buddhist monks or, or whatever, right? How did they do that so that they could create these incredibly moving stories? So not only do we have Flint teaching his teachings that help us and we're teaching people to meditate and inviting them to, to do that in their photography and realizing that photography is nothing more than a meditation, really, right? And, and if you look at photography as a meditation, it's going to change your photography. But you have you know, DeWitt and, and Ricky also saying, yep, that's exactly what we did. We just didn't know we were doing it. We realized later, right, that we were doing the same things that you and, you know, and Flint are trying to help people understand that they, they might want to choose to do too. Yeah. Was, in terms of, you know, learning that style, what is what what are the practical things that people are learning how what to do or how to do in in their photography? So 
that's a good question. So our hope is that they're learning to slow down. They're learning to pay attention, as Ricky would say, they're learning to pay attention to what turns their head. Or as I would say, they're looking to pay attention to those moments of perception. And, and so I have a great example of that. So let's talk about that real quickly. So I'm going to Grand Prismatic Spring at Yellowstone. And I'm going there because the day before I was too late for the image that I had in my mind that I wanted wrong. So we go the next day and I have in my mind to cross over that bridge and go up to Grand Prismatic Spring. And as I'm crossing over that bridge, I do that little, you know, when you're walking and you do a little takeout at the corner of your eye and you just kind of go, whoa, or wow, or whatever, right? right. <laughs> well, so normally, what do we do? Think about what happens as a photographer. What do we do? We keep going to the Grand Prismatic Spring. Why? Because that's our intention. That's what we've planned that's what we're going to do, whether it stinks, it's good, no matter what, right? We're going to go do that because that's what our intention is. And we do that really well as human beings. But thankfully, with the training that we're providing, and that training is for me too, I need it every day of my life. Right? It's not just for those who are participating. It's a constant practice. It's just like meditation is a constant practice. You never stop learning to do med- or doing meditation once you've learned it. It's, it's a practice. And so that day I'm going over that bridge, I look out of the corner of my eye and this time rather than keep going, I stopped because it was so incredible. What I was looking at was down down that river, right? And and I'm seeing fumaroles in the background just steaming more so than I've ever seen. And there's a fisherman fishing in the middle of that stinking river. And it's a it's an image of a lifetime. But what was amazing, Matt, is Every other photography saw it because what do photographers do? They see me with a tripod making a picture off to the left. And of course, they see, they look, and they keep going to Grand Prismatic Spring. Why? Because their intention was to go to that spring. So a real practical thing that we teach and that we drill home every day is you need to stop and make a photograph anytime you say, wow, or anytime something turns your head, or anytime there's a moment of perception that you catches your attention. And training yourself to pay attention to that is what I find, again, there's no right way to be a photographer or wrong way. For me and for a number of others now, we're much happier to be in that place where we're open to being taken rather than us wanting to go take, 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 rather than us wanting to go chase, 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 chase. Um, and there are people who do that and they're superb. Quite honestly, I'm envious of those, right? There's t- there are times where I'd like to be able to plan better and use photo pills, but it's just not who I am. And it doesn't give me quite as much joy as being open to that moment that turns my head and I'm going to photograph that. And by the way, when that happens, the next part that we're teaching is, but and it doesn't need to be a good photograph, whatever that means, right? Because I don't know what <laughs> a photograph is. I honestly don't. A good photograph is what's good to you. It doesn't matter whether I like like what you've created. All that matters is what you like. But generally, I think you know what I'm saying is it might not be a photograph you're going to hang on the wall, but the very act of learning to stop and photograph, as I say, and I'm known to say, what makes your heart sing, that's important, right? And then the other practical thing is to think about a meditation. So we do teach meditation. We do it in a very gentle way. You don't need to sit in a lotus position. You can sit on a chair, sit on a floor, lie down. We don't care. We have a beautiful 
beautiful yurt where we do it, but we want to give you at least knowledge of how important meditation can be uh, in helping your photography. And if you call meditation prayer, that's fine. If you call meditation meditation in, in the more formal setting and that's what you choose to do, great. If you want to get Headspace, which is a great app to lead you and guide you in meditation, that's good. But ultimately, I think the message we're trying to get through is meditation, whether it be you going out with your camera alone into the woods and you see that as a meditation, that's a good thing because you're going to be in that place where you're going to be more open and receptive to being taken. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I got into photography through my pursuit of climbing mountains. And, you know, when you're climbing a mountain, you have a singular objective. To, better up for safety, right? Exactly. Like you're, you're trying to get to the top of the mountain and get down safely. And, and I can remember many, many, many times where I would be climbing up and I would see something that just, you know, like you said, it made my heart sing. But I also knew that if I took the time to actually photograph it in the right way that I probably would be jeopardizing my safety or, you know, losing sight of my objective. And I know that a lot of landscape photographers in general, we, we kind of get into that mindset where, you know, we, we have that destination or that thing that we've planned for. Like we have this preconceived visual vision or pre-visualized shot that we want to get. And sometimes it puts blinders on us, right? Like we don't see those things out of the corners of our eyes or we don't give them appropriate credence. And I'm curious, what would you say to people who, like myself, um, who have kind of gotten stuck into those into those mindsets? Like, how do you snap yourself out of that and, and find ways to get those more, I guess, personally connective images that you're speaking of? Yeah, well, we, we just talked a little bit about those practices, but what that then, so how does that translate to, you know, the reality of doing it? Excuse me, I I think is what you're asking. And it really becomes the fact that you need to make a conscious choice, right? And so you, you've you got to say to yourself, okay, yep, I'm going to go. And I know you just did a Southwest tour. You know, I'm going to go to one of these beautiful parks in Utah. And I know I'm going to go to these drives and I've seen these iconic things, but you're going to have to create a new habit in my mind. And you're going to create that habit, which is more of photography by wandering around as our friend Sarah Marino talks about. And uh, so show up, you know, maybe because it's going to be difficult, maybe give yourself permission on that seven day trip you're making to Utah or Death Valley or wherever that you're going to go ahead and let's take Death Valley. You know, you're, you're going to go and go to the risky point and you're going to go to 20 mule team cam and you're going to do bad water, whatever. Right. But at the same time, you're going to take a day and you're just going to wander around and you're going to teach yourself how to be more present and aware and mindful and open and all those things to whatever is taking you. It, it's it's Matt. There's no other way to do it in my mind than to actually start to approach your photography from that mindset rather than a a, a shot list and a hit lid of what what you're going to do. And let me drive it home. I love stories. So here's another story. So my tour partner Dan, who I talked about. He had he and I had been to the Smoky Mountains, whatever, 10 times leading workshops. Every time he had come, he had a shot list. He said, John, when we get to Cades Cove, I want to do this, this, and this. When we get to Conalifty over, I'm going to do this. So those are the things I, I want to go home with those images. Well, he was get this was literally the year before he said, Okay, I'm gonna quit doing workshops with you because he's 10 years older than I am. So he's now well, he's more than that. And he's gonna be 78. I'll be 63 this year. 
And so this was a year before he's going to stop doing that a few years ago. And he looked at me, he says, John, I don't want you to worry about me. I'm going to just probably sit in the car and take naps more than I normally do. I'm just here to enjoy the Smokies. And when I see something, you know, that interests me, I'll get out and make a photograph. Well, guess what happened? So here's all Dan did. He made the shift from, I have a shot list. Here's my expectations. And to me, expectations are dangerous. They get in the way of what you just talked about, Matt, of those other things that might just appear, right? You, because you're so focused on that expectation. And so it was amazing. So we weren't even really paying attention to what he did shoot. I do know that he didn't shoot that much. But what he does on a workshop different than me, I don't, I don't process images during a workshop typically because I'm focused on too many other things, don't have time, but he does. So I said, hey, how did you do like on the next to last day? And he showed me his little collection in Lightroom and I went, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I said, seriously? you? Did? I thought you weren't going to shoot anything. And Matt, I kid you not, they were the best images he's ever captured in the Smoky Mountains. And he looked at me, he goes, I know. I I don't know how that happened. And I said, I know exactly how that happened because you came with no expectations and you were basically doing photography by wandering around. You just were waiting to be taken. So sure enough, we're going to go to the Palouse a couple months after that. Now, Dan's been to the Palouse probably 20 times because he was going there before we met. And he says, you know, I'm going to try that again. <laughs> that worked pretty well. And so sure enough, he showed up and he didn't have a shot list. He hardly shot. And I'll be darned if by the end of that stinking week, he didn't have the best police images he had. Mm. So that's my best advice is, yes, we can do more specific training at a, an event like the retreat where we've got actual things that we are inviting you to do and exercises to do. And of course, there's great benefit and value in being together with those people in, in a port sharing session. There's a beautiful open air porch that we meet on there on the property. And we have these dialogues about how it went and how difficult it is or how easy it was or what they saw differently. And that really helps. So if you've got a buddy or a friend who you can communicate about how hard it was to, to not be prepared and not be, you know, but then on the other hand, to talk about the, the cool little pattern you found in the mud that you never saw before because you were so focused on going to those stinking dunes. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think in the last... <clears throat> excuse me, in the last uh, probably two and a half, three years, I've been really trying my hardest to take that approach in my own photography. I would say when I look back, you know, before that, you know, I had a, some really good photos, but since I've taken that approach more and more, I've definitely seen a huge improvement and more of a, I guess you could say the photos are becoming more personal and not as, you know, like, you know, it's a, not a shot list or it's not like a replication of someone else's photograph, I guess. Right. You could it's not say. a derivative image of uh, Half Dome. Right. You know, it's rather but, what you saw right on the ground in front of you and is representative. And I love what you just said, more personal. It's, it's more of the experience that you just had at Half Dome, which right. happened to also include this tree over here and that path and that winding corner and so forth. Right. And, and that story becomes much more powerful because now those images are very much a part of you rather than maybe somebody else's vision, right? Cole Thompson, what I love about Cole, you know, he does this whole photo celibacy thing. Yeah. And now I can't quite do that. I really like looking at other people's images and I I feel that I am able to take that inspiration and use it in my work without it necessarily becoming their vision. Right. But for Cole, he can. I mean, he readily admits, he says it's just, he gets too influenced by those other great images, right? And then he finds himself chasing that. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to do what you just said, Matt. He wants to make images that are truly, absolutely his. 
he found them, he, they resonated with him, and they were absolutely his images, and nobody can ever question that. He calls that honest work, and I love that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think um, what I find is that that style of photography gives you a certain uh, set of feelings and you know, pride and accomplishment. But on the flip side, I think there is something to be said for, you know, the type of photography you were talking about before, where you have photo pills and you've planned out this amazing scene, you've pre-visualized every last detail, you know, you got to the right place, the right time, you know, you have your composition and everything happens magically. The light does what you wanted it to there is definitely a feeling that comes with that too that's just excitement and power and um i don't know it's really fun you know oh it's uh, and it's a huge do you know the image that comes to my mind matt and you're probably going to know the image josh cripps the image that he did over in dubai of the camel oh yeah with the moon yeah yeah Yeah. i mean to me that was an eclipse shot right Right. The, the if you ever watch that and people listening to this go to josh i hope it's still on his instagram feed but he had a story there and i'm sure it's still pinned he goes through exactly how that happened it's quite a long story actually but it's in, it's incredibly engaging to watch how he planned for that, how he used photo pills, how he had to go find the camel guy, how he had to find the, the, the perfect height dune, the distance away from that dune, because you got to do the calculation of how tall the camel is and how far the distance. I mean, it was insane. Of course, Josh is a, he's a really good friend. He's my adopted son and I adore him. And, and he's an engineer by training, right? And so, you know, he can do that stuff. I am not an engineer by training. <laughs> I'm a sales guy. You know, and so I could never do that. But you talk about admiration and respect. And when he tells that story, even though Josh at this point in time is much more of a photographer in my vein of photography, just showing up and letting things happen, that's really where he's most comfortable. He still, because of those engineering genes, he loves that chase. And he mm-hmm. talked about that, I think, in the um, – oh, no, I know where he talked about it. When we did our pre-Out of Chicago thing, and I was part of that with Josh and, if, and Bill Neal and Sarah and so forth. Uh, when we did that, he told that story. And, and he did talk about, as much as he likes to do the more contemplative stuff, there's some incredible satisfaction and rush that happens from planning it and then making it happen. Or, or like you said, everything comes together exactly how you plan and you go, yeah, baby, I got it. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I personally, I enjoy both myself, but um, I find that uh, <clears throat> in terms of, mm, I guess, playing the long game in terms of, you know, getting more personal satisfaction and, and I guess kind of a, a a deeper, more personal collection of images that more represent you, I think the contem- contemplative style is, um, you know, I think it's better for that but i think both approaches have their own pros and cons you know oh absolutely and like i said there is no right or wrong way to do photography and and quite honestly it drives me crazy when somebody says you should about anything right when when workshops later say you should be shooting this you should be over here you should compose you know your composition i wish they would get rid of the word should because I mean, what you should be doing is what you want to do right. and a workshop leader. And this is how I do it is, is your coach and an encouraging, you might say something like you might consider, 
you right. know, m- moving over there, but that doesn't mean you should. You, you should do what feels right. And if you want to put your subject in the middle of the frame, because that's how you feel it best represents your connection to that subject, you should put it in the middle of the frame and argue for that vision or, or argue is a bad word. I mean, it's kind of, it has a negative connotation, but I think, you know, fight for your vision. Um, uh, you, how about this? You should honor your vision. Maybe that's a better word. Honor your like vision, that. right? And, and, and stand for that and, and, and let people know that no and you know who does that well chuck kimberly you know a lot of, and, and there's a difference by the way be, between dead center bullseye and something that is in the middle of your image you're know, like a tree a tree is is centered at the bottom weight of that image and go it might bisect that frame in half or be half of that half if you will but the reality is that's not a centered tree bullseye centered. It's just a centered tree. And some and Chuck does that better than anybody I know. Most of his things tend to be centered and they're incredibly well done. You know, so that should. So yeah, back to your point, Matt. No, I'm not I'm inviting people to consider another way to approach photography in a contemplative way. If yeah. that doesn't work for you, that's fine. And, and, you know, Nick Page comes to mind, another brilliant photographer. And he does a lot of planning as far as I can tell and understand. And uh, and there's many that come to mind. And they do sure. it really, really well. And as I've said before, I wish I had that gene a little stronger sometimes because, you know, and for instance, I'm thinking of an image over at the Wanaka Willow in New Zealand where Josh and right. I do workshops together. You know, that's a, that's a, one of the best single tree scenes in the world. Well, on that scene, there's no doubt in my mind that I had that other uh, mindset. I wanted the clouds to be there. I wanted to be there at the right kind of the day. And so I did that. So I'm, I mean, there are times when I absolutely am chasing a shot. I'm not going to lie about that. But in general, I think you categorized it well, that I, I am much happier when I'm not chasing and when I'm allowing. And those are the images that resonate most deeply with me. Because any time when I look at that image, and I've got a killer shot from that Wanaka Willows, and it, I love it. I show it. I'm proud of it but not near as much as that fisherman with the fumaroles at right. Yeah, it's just not near as impactful to me because sure. that one is all about my, the lesson of drilling home, how critical it was that I need to learn to pay attention and stop when my t- head turns. And so that's the story. And then that image is so impactful for me. That's way more you know, interesting to me. Yeah, I like what you said that it's, you know, it's another way to approach your photography because what I found for myself is when I'm planning a trip to, you know, like you you had mentioned going to the Southwest, like I definitely have destinations and, you know, features and landmarks in mind that I want to photograph, but that's just kind of getting me to interesting places. Um, and I, but I also, I'm not always in the mood to, you know, try to execute on an idea. Sometimes I'm in the mood to just wander and be open to finding what I find, but sometimes I'm not in the mood for that either. So I think it's good to be able to, to have both approaches in your toolbox, depending on how you feel or, you know, if the weather is really not what you thought it was supposed to be. I think it's just another Tool in the toolbox, I guess. I really like that. I, thank you for. Sh- I'm going to steal that, Matt, because that's exactly right. I, it's not either or at all. It's not saying you should become a contemplative photographer or you might consider that. Uh, it, it, you're exactly right. It's just another way to. And, and the example you just gave is perfect. So you arrive at a location, and in your mind, you want blue sky, white, white puffy clouds at the 
Monica Willow, and that doesn't happen. This is a perfect example of how do you show up? What is your process as a photographer? Do you then say, hey, let's go get breakfast, right? Be- because <laughs> right. you didn't have what, it's a ball blue sky? Or right. do you do what we did just this last trip in September to New Zealand where we got there, sure enough, ball blue sky. And all I heard, you know, they were silent because these people know me and know my philosophy. They were they were stifling back, uh, uh, you know, because they were disappointed. You know, right. I'm not going to lie. So was I. I'm right. human and I would much prefer. But Josh, in his inevitable wisdom, he says, guys, let's do this. There was a beautiful puddle right in front of the willow. And he gets his camera off of a tripod, lays it on the ground with a you know 10 millimeter or 14 millimeter, whatever he had. And he's just got that tree filling up the frame and all these rocks in the foreground out of focus. And it's a brilliant stinking photograph. I mean, it's incredible. And see, that's the value of showing up with no preconceived ideas, open to whatever turns your head, understanding your toolbox, not only what you just mentioned, Matt, but the technical toolbox, how to use your camera, what the wide angle effect's going to do and the opportunities that's going to present. And and you're making what DeWitt Jones talks about, and that is another right answer rather than, Mm. oh, crap, I don't have clouds in the sky. I guess I'll go home or I'll go get breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. Trust me, I like breakfast. That used to be what I used to do. You know, I'd be like, oh, the conditions aren't what I expected. I guess I'll just go, you know, drink some beer or something. Yeah. um, It's not as, it's, I don't know if that's your approach to photography. I think you're going to get tired of it really fast. I suppose that's a possibility. Yeah. I, I mean, because the reality is, and uh, when when I was speaking with um, Sarah the other day, when we did that out of Chicago thing together, she talked about that a little bit about the, she was talking about some specific images and showing, I think she's showing one if I remember right. But she says, by the way, folks, this was on a ball blue sky day and we photographed all day in Death Valley. And, you know, I could hear, even though you can't hear the participants, you could hear kind of like a little audible Huh? Like what? <laughs> yeah. And, but he, I, was, I love that she told that story because, you know, it's again, you have every, I, I get frustrated with rules. I really do. Well, you should only shoot in that last hour of gold light and that first hour of gold light. Well, yeah, that's really yummy light. It really is. But that's not the only time you should be shooting. And it drives me crazy when people are teaching that because mm-hmm. as uh, you know, there's only light it's just light, folks. It's not good or bad. When we start to label things, when we start to label something as pretty or ugly or good or bad, or light is good or bad, that's when we get in big trouble. Labels are dangerous because then we say that's what that is. You know, my buddy Bill Strom, who has also passed away, he was always photographing dead, decaying things, whether that would be flowers, whether that would be leaves. And so he (laughs) saw the beauty and to the point where he made a collection of work that was astounding, astounding of dead, dying things. I love that. Thankfully, thankfully, none of those were people, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, Last fall, I did a 12 day trip here in Colorado uh, in autumn. And uh, I think we had, you know, you go out with these expectations in these shot lists of like, oh, I'm going to get this scene with these clouds and sunset light and blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, the entire trip, we had one day of clouds. The rest was just blue skies, total (laughs) sun. And I came back with some of my favorite images of autumn I've ever taken. So Good for you. Excellent. But uh, you have to be open to just 
doing something else. You and know? That's essentially back to the, the original question. That's all we're inviting you to do is be open to showing up in a different way. Showing up again, back to Ricky, because he's such a wise man uh, and all those years of Nat Geo experience and, and that he's sharing out there at the Hui. And he says, you know, you got, he said he would constantly tell himself, I need to show up in neutral, kind of a car reference, right? Not in mm-hmm. first gear, second gear, third gear. You know, I, I need to show up in neutral and always checking himself to say, okay, how am I showing up here? And I like to say when I teach my own version of that is the, the idea that when we show up at any given day, we, we show up with baggage, emotional baggage, um, intellectual baggage because of all those technical things we just learned about something, our own life's baggage because we've got a relationship that sucks right now. We just uh, got fired from a job. If you don't think all that stuff affects your way of showing up to photograph, you're crazy. Mm. It absolutely will color your photography. And that's, again, what we're trying to do is, you know, what is it? Jay Mizell said uh, when, when he was asked, you know, how do I make more interesting photographs like you, Jay? And without missing a beat, he says, become a more interesting person. And so, you know, and I don't know if you know Jay Mizell's work, but he's got a great whip. He's a brilliant photographer, but really funny guy, kind of acerbic sometime and kind of in your face about it, but it's really good. And and he's saying what Ansel has said, what Edward, Edward Weston has said, what I'm saying, what Ricky's saying. And all we're simply saying is, if you want to make better photography, or if you want your photography to advance in any way, shape or form, become a more interesting person. And that means you're going to study uh, other photographers, other art. You're going to study poetry. You're going to read books. You're going to read novels. You're going to all these you know classics. And all, and all that stuff is going to be impacting your choices as a photographer. That's what's coming out of you. That's the light that you're sharing as a photographer is coming from who you are as a human being. So the more interesting your life is, the more well-rounded of a human being you are, that's going to come through in your photography. And one of the things that you had said to me when we um, talked about doing this podcast was that you said that we bring ourselves to our work and the more that we understand this, the better our work will be. And I think that's essentially what you had just described. However, what I really wanted to try to understand is, you know, you can read a bunch of books. You can try to become a more, like you said, more quote unquote interesting person, but you know, your personality is what your personality is. So let's say that, um, you know, you maybe aren't the most interesting person in the world. How, how is understanding that about yourself make your work better? Well, you know, it's kind of like phototherapy is what we're talking about a little bit, I think, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of, of therapy. I think therapy is a good thing. And it's kind of like we've taught our kids and now grandkids and whomever, you know, that we skin a knee or something and we got to go see a doctor or break a bone, you know, well, we have emotional uh, challenges in our life. And my goodness, look at what we're in right now with this COVID crisis. Right. It's causing lots of depression, lots of anxiety for many, many people. It's real stuff. And so having somebody talk to about that and talk through that is really, really helpful. Well, it's not unlike that in photography. So let's talk about vision for a minute and see if we can't tie that together. So what's vision? Well, vision, as Cole and I have talked about this, again, Cole Thompson talked about this so many times, vision really is a sum of who you are as a human being. And I like 
what Cole does. He puts it into a blender and it comes out the other side and you have vision. So think about it, it's your socioeconomic status. It's, uh, it's the job you have. It's how you were raised. It's your religion. It's your political views on and on and on and on and on. The books you've read, the movies you've seen, the people you've loved, the people in your life, uh, your prejudices, your whatever, right? So that's your vision, right? You, you don't create a vision. You just get in touch with what your vision is. So hopefully that's going to clarify what I'm talking about when I say you, or Ansel says, or Weston says, or all these masters say, when you, what you bring to the act of photography is you. And the more you're willing to, to do that self-analysis or that therapy work, if you will, and get in touch with who you are as a human being the, and what that vision is. So rather than make it a kind of touchy-feely, uncomfortable therapy work, maybe make it a little simpler than that and say, the more you're willing to understand that you're showing up and bringing to the act of photography all of that stuff that went into that funnel I just talked about and comes out the other side, the more then we can take that and imprint that in our work. So it doesn't matter if somebody's an introvert, Matt, and, and they really don't like to talk like you and I do, as long as they're being in touch with that and what has influenced their life and what, you know, as Cole, when he talks about vision and finding his vision, that, that doesn't, you're not going to go from this podcast tonight, sit down with a piece of paper and go, here's my vision. That's not going to happen. It's going to take time, years potentially of time to really get in touch with who you are as a human being and, and how you're bringing that forward in your photography and, and how that's impacting your work. So I don't know mm -hmm. if I did a great job of answering that question, but that's my attempt and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting because I think that especially nature and landscape photographers, we, the holy grail, I think is, you know, having our personal voice that's uniquely ours. We want people to look at one of our images and say, oh, that's a, that's a John Barkley. Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. You know, and, and I think what I've found is that in pursuit of that, a lot of people try to take shortcuts and um, and I know I personally was guilty of this for years in terms of, well, if I just, you know, make my images look more, you know, fantasy-like and, and I do this special trick in post-processing, it's like people are going to think of me when they see these images. And I think that's an interesting trend that I've seen There's a lot of people are struggling with that. So then they, they're kind of grasping for ways to get there instead of going, taking the long path, which is probably more painful, especially if you're like two or three years in and you're like, I'm still not there yet. You know, I think a lot of people gravitate towards these, um, I don't know, tricks to, to feel like they've made it. Good do, do word. You, you, you know, uh, to me, of everything we've just talked about, to me, that's the soundbite of the whole discussion so far is what you just said. I really believe that. Because what you said was really, really, really powerful and really important. And essentially to summarize back at you, what I think I heard is rather than, and I think what you're saying, there's a difference between uh, vision and style. Style in my mind can be, I'm going to use texture on all of my images and create, not again, please understand, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? I love texture work and I've seen bodies of work that's a, that are brilliant. So I'm not making a... Um, a statement about what's right and wrong here. It's just not who I am. But what I'm trying to say is style is saying, yeah, I'm trying to create the style so people will know my work rather than, like you said, the courage to just be on the journey 
and let that evolve and happen. And you're right, that is much harder because it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to look in the mirror and kind of question who you are and what you're bringing to the act of photography. But uh, you know, but if you think of Kurt Cobain comes to mind as a songwriter, he's slathered all over his songs, his heart and soul and being. Stevie Ray Vaughan is a guitar player, is slathered all over the strings of his guitar because he's playing from his gut from his soul from his heart think yeah. of the best think of the best painters that you can think of and how crazy some of them were seriously crazy but they were bringing that craziness to the canvas that's what right. we're talking about here right it, but that process is a lot harder than hey you know matt can you tell me how to get the best up the field of this shot and, you know, how should I compose it with this here, this here, and this here? And then, boom, 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 you do that. Yeah, it's going to be nice. And it may even have the imprint of, hey, that's a, that's a Matt Payne, you know, photograph. But it's not going to have what those painters and Kurt Cobain and Stevie Ray and on and on had. They had heart yeah, and no, soul slather. Yeah. It's been interesting for me because, you know, I, I definitely know that I'm not there yet. And the, the longer I do photography, the more I realize, the less I know, the and the more, the longer the journey is. And I think that's, in some ways, that's kind of exciting. Oh, I but, think it's important. I don't think there is a there yet. I don't think of it about that. Right. There is no arrival ever right. in yeah, art. Yeah, which is ever. kind of a, it's kind of a... Um, relieving to think that way but mm -hmm. i guess what i'm trying to say is like i'm not trying to say my photographs are all that and a ball of wax but what i what i am trying to say is you know i think when people are trying to rush that process to kind of define their vision you know watch watching a tutorial from somebody that they admire and then applying that technique of dodging and burning or whatever mm -hmm. they learned or right. adding a little glow ball to the corner of the image to give it like this a, a theory, ethereal right. uh, light, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like in every single one of your photos, then you start scrolling through Instagram and it's like everyone else's photos look exactly like that too. So it's like, right. yeah, you know, it's like, it, I mean, if that's what you want to do, it's fine. Of but course. It's, yeah. But if you're taking those kind of shortcuts to make your photographs look really good. And I, I think you're, I think you're doing yourself a disservice in the long run, although that's just my thinking based on my own personal path, having kind of gone there myself and then realizing, what am I doing? This is this is crazy. Well, <laughs> well let me help. Let me let you off the hook there a little bit, if you will. And, you know, because it, it is your personal opinion. But here's here's what I he hear you saying. And I think it's reasonably normal. So we start as a photographer. We're influenced by people. It's pretty common to want to copy them. For sure. I think that's a perfectly normal route. Right. So it's not good or bad. Again, it has nothing to do with good or bad. If that's where you're at in your journey, listening to this podcast, you're relatively new, you're a year or two into it. And, and what I think Matt and I, or at least I'm trying to help again, help save him a little bit here. We're not saying to you, don't do that. That's not at all what we're saying. We're just saying, be aware that that's just the part of the journey that you're on right now is that you're maybe not confident enough, haven't learned about the vision yet, haven't paid the price, if you will, right, of, of learning and taking time and the years that it might take to do that. And then realize that, hey, okay, maybe the next step is going out and not looking at anybody else's work and showing 
showing up at uh, the Alabama Hills in California and, and making those images all on your own with no preconceived ideas, with nobody showing you an image of what the place even looks like. And, and that'll be hard, you know, as a second year photographer, you'll be overwhelmed in the Alabama Hills, but at least you'll come out of there making images that are uniquely yours and be well on that path to learning about what it is that resonates with you, how you bring your vision to the Alabama Hills. And, and those images become like honest work that Cole talks about. And so again, no right or wrong. It's just this sure. journey we're on that we just talked about before, Matt, that doesn't end, right? So you yeah, learned, it sounds like you learned that, hey, I did that, but now I'm more comfortable here. But that the whole point of the, what we're just talking about is that's a journey and that's going to take a years. It's not going to sure. happen in a week or through a an online course that you would go out the next day and make images that look like that person. Right. And I think I think one of the most interesting things that I like to do when I think about this type of thing is, you know, the combination of of of, you know, setting aside for yourself uh the the space to be honest in answering the question as to why you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Whether that be why are you using the post processing technique that you learned or why are you using an in the field technique that you learned or why are you attracted to a certain subject and not another subject um because i think if you if you take the time to actually be honest in how you answer the question it might force you to realize that the reason why you're doing it doesn't perhaps doesn't really make a whole lot of sense again right on the money Matt, another brilliant statement. It really is because because you might say to yourself, let, "Let me give you this. This is a great example of that." You, did I interrupt? I'm sorry because I'm really no. You're good perfect. I'm really good at it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so am I. So am I. Oh my gosh. So again, I have to do it. So out at the Hui, what he would do is this: uh, he would buy uh, those disposable Kodak cameras. Right. right. And he'd give everyone of those a roll of 36 film right in those at those days. And he'd, he'd be very serious because he was trying to teach them that it doesn't matter what equipment you're using. So I want you, as well as using your big boy, big girl cameras throughout the week on the workshop, I want you to also be using that little disposable plastic thing that you throw away after you get it developed and make images with that. And so finally, on the last day, he gathers everybody around a pool. And he, he, he says, oh, by the way, bring your disposable cameras. And they're all standing around the pool, you know, 17 people, whatever. And then he says, okay, throw your cameras in the pool. <laughs> well, and then, you know, there's, so there's kind of like three reactions, Matt. You've got these people who go, okay, and they throw it in the water. It's no big deal. And then you have people who are like, oh, and then you got the third group who says, what the, why, there is no way I'm ever letting go of this. And then DeWitt asked the really important question. So why? Why do you photograph? Why? And so the answers are quite interesting, right? Well, because I work for a living doing photography and I know there's an image on there, even though it's taken with a disposable camera, that I'm going to be able to make money with. Good answer. The person who throws it in the pool says, oh my gosh, it was easy to throw in the pool because the experience I had with that camera was so powerful, so enlightening to me. I didn't need the camera. The experience is what I needed. Another right answer. Mm -hmm. Somebody who struggled with it says, ah, I know what you're trying to teach me here and I get it, you know, but, but I want to be able to bring these home and show my family these, these really three pictures. I know they're going to love them. Another right answer. So the point is there's no right or wrong answer to whether you felt comfortable throwing it in the water, kept it, whatever. It goes right back. To me, it's an illustration of what you just said. You 
if you are willing to take the time and as you said, be honest with the question, why do I photograph? And I think you're saying take it to another level, which is what we do at the retreat. Why do you make the choice to use a wide angle lens? Why do you make the choice to have the subject be near to you versus far from you? Why do you, and those are great questions. And the more we can ask those types of questions, the stronger our photography is going to be mm. hands down. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because I think as human beings, we automatically want to assign some kind of value or judgment statement behind asking the question, why? Like when I say, if I, if I were to ask somebody who has, you know, a hundred thousand Instagram followers, why do you do that post-processing technique in all of your photographs? I'm not trying to insinuate that you're doing it for the wrong reason. I just want you to be able to honestly answer the question. Yes. Yeah. And if your answer is because I want 120,000 Instagram followers, that's totally fine. Exactly. Yep. I just think answering that question, honestly, for me, when when I started asking that question, it, it definitely forced me to kind of go introspectively. Like I was doing, you know, composites and crazy post-processing things. And when I asked myself that question, why am I doing that? I didn't like the answer that I told myself huh. once. And so I stopped doing it. And yep. that doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. It just... Um, it pushed my photography in a more in a direction that I felt was more representative of what I wanted it to be for me. Absolutely. And again, all the way back to the original questions that we were kind of pondering here about this contemplative practice in photography, that's exactly what you're doing. You know, so there's another good example of what you can do that you just shared. You can be asking those hard questions of why you're doing something and be honest with yourself about it and and now start taking your your photography in a more honest direction rather than in for you, right? You were taking it in a more honest direction rather than this contrived trick or something that was trying to get you noticed or whatever, rather than I'm, again, I'm old, so I don't care as much about all those likes and everything as evidenced by my followers on Instagram. I think I'm approaching 3,000. I know it's ridiculously low. So everybody listening to this, I expect like to have a hundred thousand followers. No, <laughs> if I get another hundred, I'd be just thrilled. Um, but I really, I don't. That's not the critical thing to me. Is to get those followers. It's hey, look, I'm human. I like people to give me nice feedback. That's sure. just human. But ultimately, I put images up that make my heart sing, and I I hope they might jo bring joy to somebody else too. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I keep telling myself over and over and over again over the years as a photographer is to stop caring about what other people think or what other people are doing. And I know that's so incredibly difficult as human beings who we want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want people to like our artwork. Um, and, but I will say that in those moments where you can disconnect yourself from that kind of need to be liked and wanted, it, I think it does make you a better photographer. Oh, my, without a doubt. And you're right. It is human and it is hard. But the more we can make images for us, really, the only people we need to please, period, is us. The the liking by other people is, is icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if you can sit down and you look at your work and you ask yourself why and, and, and you don't care what other people think and you're still loving doing it, I, more power to you, like. Do whatever you want, you know? 
That's right. Curious, go circling back for a second. So do you, since you, Matt, have kind of done a more contemplative approach or the mixing of the two, as you talked about, but why you, do you find yourself making less images too? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, there used to be, I used to go out for a three-day weekend and come back with a thousand images. And now I probably go out for 12 days and come back with 400, you know? There you go. Yep. Same, same for me. I, and you know what I like it enough to, and you're probably too young to have shot film. Did you shoot film ever? I did not. Um, yeah. My yeah. first camera was a, it was an eight megapixel Sony DSC 828, which had That's a fixed, cool. yeah. fixed Zeiss lens on it was, but it was a um, sweet little camera. It was a cool little camera. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I never did shoot film. I mean, I shot like a, I shot like a little disc camera, like a Kodak disc oh, camera sure. when I was a yep. kid. Yep. Um, but other than that, no, I wasn't like a serious film photographer. Well, all of my training was on film, you know, and so when I teach, uh, you know, lectures or even when I'm teaching workshops, I talk about the idea that, you know, they say, yeah, you're not, you're not, you know, processing your images during the workshop. I said, no, I treat it like a photography workshop that I would have taken in the film days. What I loved about that is you couldn't get your film unless you're on some fancy workshop where they ran the film to a local lab and got it developed. But generally you, you had to wait till you got home, send your stuff off to the lab or go to the store. And it was 10 days before you saw images, right? But the real value of that is again, the contemplative practice, right? That's why I'm yearning to get back to that. That's why finding Flint to, to generate this uh, retreat that we do, we offer is so important to me because I loved the film days for that. When we got together at a workshop, all the conversation was about how we showed up to photograph. It wasn't about Lightroom and Photoshop and showing each other their images on their phones. That's fun. I do it too, right? But the reality was we it was all about how we photographed. And that was what it was so much more educational in my mind back in the film days. There's great value in the right now of being out on the dunes and and me being able to show you exactly a composition because somebody's not understanding why I'm using 400 millimeters. Don't get me wrong. There's real value in that. And there's a aha moment that happens on the dune instead of after you've spent the money, gone home from the workshop, yeah. you know, so that's all good, but there's also a negative side to the, all that immediacy that we're not really present and connected to the moment in the dunes, you know, that I was just talking about We're we're way too saturated with all this other technology that that's getting in the way of that, what again, I think is way more important. And that is the experience I'm having in the dunes and asking those questions of what is it that I'm being drawn to? Why should I choose a 400 millimeter lens in the dunes? Because I want to abstract those dunes. What am I trying to represent? The whole dunes or just that abstract shape and shadow and light? Oh, I want to do shadow, shape and light. Then that's why I'm going to get a 400 millimeter lens out and do that. All that's way more important than, hey, how am I going to process that? in Lightroom. You can do that when you get home. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting too, because I think it depends on where you are at in your journey as a photographer. I think if I was to think back seven years ago as to where I was at, you know, with my Nikon D800 and the Holy Trinity lenses. Yes, great lenses. I, if you would have asked me, why are you doing this? I don't think I would like the answer looking back now. I, I would, it would have been something like, oh, because I think it's cool and i'm trying to get a really cool photograph that other people will think is cool you know mm -hmm. and, and that's fine that's a good that was a that worked for me back then and it it as brooks jensen says it it um uh, juiced my jets yeah. back then yeah. but um that doesn't juice my jets anymore yeah. and 
That's different. There's nothing wrong with, with that, but... So I'm going to put it's... you on the spot, Matt. Yeah. Why do you photograph? <laughs> I have an answer. I'll start if you'd like, because I, I, it doesn't have to be long. I've thought deeply about this. I photograph because it feeds my soul. Mm. So why do you photograph? And again, if you if you want to pass and say, I got to think about that, that's good. I don't want to put you super duper on the spot. But you know, have you thought about that question? Why do you photograph? I, I think about it quite a bit. And um, I think what's interesting about that is that it depends on the day Ah, Um, and each individual on any given trip that I take the reason why I have the camera out could and why I'm taking the picture changes depending on my mood depending on where I'm at depending on what's going on in my life Um, but I would say to boil it all down and kind of the least common or most Mm -hmm. common denominator I guess you Mm -hmm. should say Mm -hmm. most of the time it just boils down to um, uh, it's, it's a release, it's a creative release for me. Um, and it gives me a way to, um, challenge, challenge myself in ways that, uh, other things just simply have never challenged me before. Like most things that I try to do, this is going to sound really arrogant, but most of the time when I try to do something, I'm, I can figure it out and it works pretty well and I get it and it's, all is good. But there's something about photography that keeps me coming back because I feel like there's always a way to do it better or differently or, um, you know, express yourself in a slightly different way. So for me, it's, it's something that I've never felt like I've quite mastered no matter how good the final product is. Great. Good. Excellent. Yeah. It's kind of a weird way to answer the question, but... <laughs> no, it's a good, it was an honest way to answer the question. And and I suspect now that I've asked it, you're going to probably think about it a little more. <laughs> well, and I'm sure like if you ask me tomorrow, my answer might be a little different. Absolutely. It evolves. Yeah. Yep. Because as you were speaking and I was kind of taking in, I was realizing that I think I do want to modify mine. That's been such my, it's become an answer that I've given because it really has been something that I've thought deeply about. And that's where I came up to. But I think I would add to mine actually. So it feeds my soul. And also, I absolutely adore the fact that photography is the vehicle that connects me to the universe. Hmm. So, right. So sometimes I'm just oblivious to everything that's going on around me. But boy, when that camera's in my hand and I'm in that headspace of trying to be open to whatever turns my head, I am connected to the universe in a way that I'm just not normally connected. And I love mm. that. Yeah. What I love is um, since I've taken up photography, you know, I've always been really connected to the natural world and mountains and forests and lakes and all that stuff. But what I've noticed about myself at after having after taken up photography is that I seem to see the world a little bit differently. Um, Absolutely. Yep. And not just the natural world, you know, moments in time with, with people in a restaurant or um, like I'll notice things in movies that I never would have maybe noticed before. So totally think, relate. Yeah. It's, it's totally interesting how it that. changes the way you see, see things. My, one of my favorite personal things that happens is, you know, my kids obviously have grown up around a photographer and I love it when my uh, youngest Brittany will has commonly written and said a text, dad, look outside. 
Yeah. You know, and she's seeing this incredible sunset and she gets it, you know, and now and my daughter Jennifer is a ridiculously good iPhoneographer. She just has a gift for being able to compose the grandchildren and captures these moments that are just spectacular, you know? Right. And then my wife has now become, you know, my business partner in this business and she's, it, it kind of ticks me off because she's <laughs> just gifted as in, in photography. I have to work real hard at it. And ask all these questions. She she just goes makes a good picture. I say, so why the how? Huh? <laughs> and she goes, oh, it's just easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah I know that's funny. That's kind of what I was just saying. Is I what one of the things I love about photography is that no matter how good you think you are, you're really at least for me. Yeah. Um, it's you're not it's, no there's always somebody who you just go are you kidding me right oh my gosh yeah. it's so fun when you go out on a trip with friends who have vastly different ways of seeing the world and you come back and you're sitting around the campfire looking at each other's photos from the day and you all went to the same place <laughs> yeah and you know you look at one person's images and you're like are you serious dude how did yeah. you where did yeah. you see that somebody introduced me to i mean i had known the the name daniel corden but i just didn't know his work at all i'm ashamed i'm embarrassed about that because all of a sudden i go out and i realize this guy's got whatever 1.4 million followers on seriously i think it's that many right on instagram and i went and looked at his work and i said why am i doing this again <laughs> holy crap <laughs> i right. mean he, he, he is he is amazing holy cow just took your your sd cards and flushed them down i just the flushed them down the toilet i was like and then but seriously and that's real right i'm that i call that fears uncertainties and doubts or fud and man we have to fight that our whole lives oh, i yeah. think you know when all of a sudden we see these images and we go wait a second come on i'm not even in that ballpark but well, then i have to it's that imposter syndrome, right? Amen. Yep. I, I have to re- I really have to go. And for me, that's a real weakness. And so I have to go into that self-talk and remind myself, wait a minute, this is not a competition. My images are not his. I don't want them to be like his. I want them to be mine. And then slowly I come out of the drug-induced coma. <laughs> so, oh, uh, yeah, but- I'm glad to hear that because I, I struggle with that. Oh, it's hard. Oh, my gosh. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. And I think... There, that's for me. That's one of the the true value of the kind of the Cole Thompson celibacy approach is, um, you know, obviously it it prevents you from having that preconceived idea that you know forces you to not see things, but it also forces you to stop comparing your work with people whose work is not yours. You know. Yep. Your vision is your vision, you know, to the point where, you know, Cole and I, I don't know if I said that during this, this time together, but he and I do workshops together. Uh, we do Cole, uh, we do um, rather Death Valley together. We've done the Faroe Islands. We've done Oregon Coast and we've got other things planned together. We've become good friends and and we like doing things together. And, you know, he's always talking about this idea of, of not letting others look at work to the point where, you know, on a workshop or a photo tour, there's almost an expectation that tour leaders are going to give you feedback on your image. Well, they're all very surprised and I kind of warn them ahead of time. He won't do it. It just will not do it. And so I have to help them understand that he really doesn't want to look at your images, but he doesn't just not do it. He actually makes a very strong case for why. And it's essentially that what we just talked about. It's why would you allow somebody else to have their vision and impose it on your work? They know nothing about your vision. So why are you allowing somebody who has no idea what your vision is to impose theirs on yours? Which is a very logical sound argument. It really is. And so he's really inviting them to be 
well with what they're doing and evaluate their images themselves and decide whether they like it or not. It's that simple, you know? And of course I argue, which I do, that if they're a first year photographer, I think there's some value in a little bit of feedback and they can, to which he says, no, you're wrong, John. And it goes on and on. I mean, seriously, right in front of the student. But I think that's a healthy conversation because we are trying to get to the place where we're making images that are ours without influence movement. Yeah. And I think you could even take it to the next level in terms of, um, how you perceive other people's comments about your work. You know, I I see on social media all the time, well-established photographers that get really upset when another photographer makes a negative comment about their photograph. And, and for me, like if someone makes a negative comment about my photographs, I'm like, that's cool. You don't have to like my stuff. I don't really care, Yep. but it's interesting to see how other people kind of react. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good thing to notice. Right. I mean, getting back to the contemplative retreat stuff, that's what, or that's another part of the equation that we're talking about through that week is paying attention, noticing the word notice gets used a lot. Notice that you're reacting so negatively to somebody else's negative. And so what's that about? Getting in touch with that and realizing, eh, okay, maybe that's not a good way to be reacting to this. It's just somebody's opinion. That's all it is. Well, I think you could even flip that flip that on the on its head and say, you know, notice how you're reacting when you don't like someone else's photograph. That, that's even more powerful, right? And why? And now use that in your own work, right? So right. notice what you like, what you don't like about other people's work, and that's going to inform your work. Right. Yep. Awesome, man. Well, this this has been really sweet. Who would you recommend we have here on the podcast? Well, that's going to be easy, right? We've been talking about right? this guy, Cole Thompson, this whole time. And, and I'm not sure Cole has been on with you, has he? He has not. Okay. Well, well, because I'm good friends with Cole, we're going to make that happen. And it's going to be a huge success because he is such an interesting human, great communicator, and he will stir up all sorts of controversy. He really will because he has some pretty strong opinions of how how we should approach photography and and he's pretty opinionated about that but i think it's it's great because he, he the reason we work so well together is it gets us really thinking mm-hmm. and having these types of conversation that we're just having is what cole and i have all the time so he would be great um betty wiley is a good friend on cape cod and betty wiley is an extraordinarily gifted photographer one of the best that i've been around her you know some people matt are good photographers i hate to even use the word photographer with betty i see betty as an artist who happens to use a camera her she has very very artistic capabilities both in image composition and in her specifically in her image processing skills are second to none she's really really talented in lightroom and photoshop and compositing and doing those types of things and and dropping in a sky but you'll never know it the difference with her work is you have zero idea of what she's done you think it's just a natural photograph betty is also a very interesting person she would be tremendous uh let me see another one would be a guy named mitch dubrown or i'm i'm black and white is really my passion, uh, although I do both, color and black and white. There's there's three photographers who I adore, and that's Cole Thompson, uh, Chuck Kimmerly, who I know you've had on, 
And then Mitch DeBroner would be my third biggest influence. Mitch is a big time uh, black and white photographer, uh, an incredibly interesting person. He and I have done workshops together as well last year. We hope to do a few more. Uh, he makes a lot of money selling images, which a lot of people don't. And he might you know, talk about that with you. But I think uh, Mitch DeBroner would be in a really, really good interview. Awesome. Well, John, this has been just a blast. Well, good. I, it feels like it went okay. You know, you, you talk about fears, uncertainties, and doubts. I'd much rather have a camera and be doing that. These things are somewhat frightening to to have these dialogue. I, in my mind, about halfway through, I'm like, okay, people, their eyeballs are rolling back in their heads, and they're like, oh my gosh, when are they going to say something interesting? So hopefully it's been interesting and there are people still listening. Right. That's always the goal. <laughs> yes. That would be good for you too, right? <laughs> if this never gets posted, I I know, I know there's a problem, right? <laughs> right. No, I don't think I've ever done that, actually. Oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. I hope I'm no. not the first. All right. Well, thanks so much to John for joining us for a great conversation on the podcast. If you enjoyed our chat, please join us for a bonus episode over on Patreon, where John shares how he leverages his communication skills to sustain his business in photography. I think you can get a lot of great ideas out of that bonus episode, so be sure to check it out. Well, Patreon is how I keep the show running. It helps me pay my hosting costs, my audio licensing fees, my podcasting software subscription, my computer equipment, and of course, it pays for my time. Thanks to everyone who has stepped up to keep this thing going. I appreciate you and I want to promote you. And speaking of, let's talk about one of our awesome patrons, Anton Everine. Anton has developed a couple of really cool tools for, for photographers, and they're definitely worth checking out. The first one that I have fun using is his Photo Namer website, and if you're like me, finding creative names for your photos is sometimes a challenge. Well, Anton has you covered. Just check out the show notes for a link to that awesome tool. Also, Anton has developed a fast and intuitive luminosity masking solution called ArcPanel. He has free tutorials available which help you see how to use it. Check it out by going to arcpanel.everine.photo. That's A-V-E-R-I-N dot photo. Well, are you a patron and have something you want me to promote here on the podcast? Let me know. Don't be shy. Let's work together to keep each other afloat. That's what this community is all about. Well, here's what's coming up on the show. I've already recorded so many great episodes this spring that have yet to come out. Recently, we sat down with a new up-and-comer, Ethan Deshays. He is a young person, and he shared his perspective as someone who is very new to the craft, which I think some of you might appreciate. I also recorded with one of my longtime heroes here in Colorado, Todd Cottle. Todd has a reputation for telling it like it is, and it sometimes gets him into a little bit of trouble. We take the time to talk about how his passion for Colorado and photography drive that troublemaking. I also recorded with Manuel Palacios, a photographer from upstate New York. Manuel has a wonderful vision and in his obsession with the Adirondacks shines through in his great work. He's also a scientist by training and so we talked a lot about how that background informs his art and vice versa. And this morning I was able to sit down and talk with Margaret Soraya. She's a photographer living in the highlands of Scotland. We had such a wonderful discussion about mindfulness, slowing down, and her philosophical approaches to our craft. 
yet to be recorded, but also coming up, we have Joseph Roybal, Felix Inden, Elizabeth Brentano, William Neal, Bree Stockwell, and many more. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.